Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. We would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at 9.15 or 10.45 a.m. at our new location at 5103 Pegasus Court. To learn more about what Sunday mornings at Collective look like, please head to mycollective.church and click on what to expect. There are going to be a lot of great things at Collective this summer as Maryland opens up, so stay tuned for upcoming events and announcements as we continue to try to make an impact in our city. Now here's Sunday's message. I am a runner. I love to run. And these days when the sun wakes up at 5.45 in the morning, there's nothing better than going out and waking up with the sun and running 45, 75, 150 minutes. I know you feel me on this. It's relaxing. It's peaceful. It calms me. And I've been running my whole entire life. My first official race was when I was 10 years old. I ran a five-mile race in what's called the Hoosier State Games in the okay state of Indiana. No offense, onliners, hit them in the comments section. I think that the South is best. But all throughout school and then into college, I still continued running, but I found long-distance running. And so seven days before I graduated college, I was in Nashville, Tennessee, running my first marathon. And I was hooked. I loved it. I loved what you learned about yourself when you crossed the finish line. So I wanted to do more and more marathons. And actually, our very own Pastor Michael came with me down to southern Georgia for a marathon. This was many years ago. We were cheap and poor, and so we stayed with a friend of a friend. You know how this is. We got there late at night after they were already asleep, but they had two bedrooms set up for us. And so we look in the first bedroom. It's a nice, neat, normal bed, everything that you would expect. And we go to look in the second bedroom, and there is a pink, frilly little girl's princess bed in the second bedroom. And so we're looking at each other, and he actually decides, since I was the one running, he was going to take that little girl's pink princess bed, and that's where our pastor spent the night a few years ago. There are no pictures for you. I'm sorry. He was very adamant about not letting that happen, so you're just going to have to use your imagination. But my whole entire life, I've been a runner. I love it. I'm hooked. So imagine my surprise and my shock when I found out this thing I love, I've been doing wrong my whole entire life. I couldn't believe it. I, love for the lo I run for the love of running, but I started to dig into the nerdiness. Don't worry, I'm not going to go there. I know some of you will be bored about that. But I started to look into the data and the research, and that led me to running form. And I realized that my foundation, my feet, have been wrong my whole entire life. And if anybody except me figured this out for me, it would not have gone over well. Like, oh yeah, how many marathons you run, bro? Exactly, sit down. But I discovered this for myself and I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I've been running wrong my whole entire life. And so basically I got rid of my old shoes, embraced a new pair of shoes and got to working on my foundation. Has something like this ever happened to you? Something that you're passionate about that you love, you figure out, wow, I was doing this wrong, or I learned something I never knew before. 
Maybe this has happened in your faith. Now, we are going to learn today about a solid foundation in our faith. And the big heavy word for this is apologetics. The dictionary will tell you that this is the intellectual defense of the Christian religion, a branch of theology. I know, I know, me too, Apollo boring. I get it. If that is you, I get you because I am you. Like, tell me a story, leave me in awe. That's what I want. But some of us, we like spreadsheets and we think that Excel is fun. And you're like, yeah, let's dig into this. Theologize the theology, baby. I'm ready. Let's go. People like me, don't worry. We are going to dig into intellectual stimulation this morning, but we're going to make it as fun and energy filled as I know how. So let's start with a solid foundation. Like what is even the point? Why does this matter in our Christian faith? Now think for just a second, if you were asked when you walked out the door and you left today, whether you are a Christian or not this morning, if you were asked, hey, why do you do that church thing? And what is this Jesus guy all about? What would you say? Would you know what to say? For our young people in the room, would it be like, uh, my parents do it? For all of us, is it, I don't know, this is just what my church does. And this definitely goes way deeper than, dude, just read your Bible and you'll figure it out. And if you're like me, and if you lack substance and understanding of some of the deep foundational things about the Christian faith, we have a lot to learn together. And one of the main parts of the Bible that's going to kind of drive this whole entire series that we're jumping into is Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. The rain comes in torrents, the floodwaters rise, the wind beats against the house, but it's not going to collapse because it's built on the bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and when the wind beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And in this series, today, we're looking at communion, but we're going to continue with the Bible and Jesus and baptism. And we're going to dig into why each of these matter, why should we teach them, and what can we practically walk away with? Because we want you to build your faith on solid rock. We know that the storms and the winds and the rains of life are going to come, but we don't want your faith to collapse. We want it to last the storm. So let's jump in with communion. Just some quick things here popping off right from the very beginning. Everything that we do as a church here at Collective points to the life of Jesus, specifically his burial and his death and his death, his burial and his resurrection. And so as a result, every Sunday that we meet together, we choose to take communion together. We pause and we focus on Jesus. We focus on the grace that he gives us. We call this endless second chances. And communion is our weekly reminder of that grace. Yes, it is definitely a churchy thing that we do. But the foundation is so important that we don't move away from it. 
And also here at Collective, we choose to use juice instead of wine. If you read in the Bible, you figure out they use wine in biblical times. But we have some people in the room who are minors who are under 21, and we want them to be able to participate in communion with us. Also, we have some people who may be in various stages of recovery, and we choose to use juice over wine because we want everybody in the room to be able to participate in remembering this grace that Jesus offers. And also, this is something that is pretty important. The cracker and the juice represent Jesus's body and blood. Like, this is not a literal translation. This is just symbolic of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, Pastor Mike will tell you one of his favorite things is hearing the crinkling of the paper as we all peel it back and hearing it echo off the walls of the room. He loves it. It's like a baby crying or if you hear the music starting right next door, everybody just immediately acknowledges it. Now, I will tell you personally, I think that the juice is nasty. I don't know about you, but it's gross. And I cringe every time I go to take this juice. I'm not a fan. Whoever this company is that made this stuff is cashing in because of COVID. And I kind of think maybe they just stopped caring. Demand is up. That stuff has been on the shelf for 15 years, but we got to get rid of it anyway. Sell it. Shelf life died when NSYNC died. Who cares? Sell it. Some of the young people in the room might be like, uh, what's in sync?" It's like, you know, the album cover and the music and the boy band. I'm glad you got that joke. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you got that joke. But seriously, if you have to endure that juice every week, I'm sorry, but that's how we do it at Collective. But I've taken it a lot of different ways over the years. There's a method where you hold it and somebody at the front of the room instructs everybody to take it at the exact same time. It's a little bit uncomfortable, especially for the first time. There's also a method where tables are kind of scattered all over the room and you walk up to one of the tables and you take communion there. This is what I like to call the cattle herd method. There's some churches who don't do it at all and I'm like, did, did, I, miss, did I miss something here? What's going on? And my wife's family, she grew up Catholic, and I don't know all of the traditions, but you walk up there, and the person at the front of the room kind of like puts that, and I'm like, "Mm -mm, nope, you just Stephen Curry that thing on over here, and I will catch it because we are not on that level. Some people use that Hawaiian sweet bread that tastes so good, and I'm like, give me some of that, Jesus. I could take all of that that you can give me. But here's the thing. It's not about the taste. It is not about how we do it. It's about the importance of it and what communion means. And the least favorite way that I have experienced taking communion is when somebody is holding it for you and you tear off a little bit of bread and then you dip it in the juice and you take it and then you take them and you serve the next person. And one time when I was in college, we did this at a service that I attended, and I was the last person to take communion. So I was left holding this in front of the entire room, and it made me incredibly uncomfortable, and I didn't like it. And just to be honest with you, serving communion has never been something that I have really enjoyed. Like, I'm standing there holding the bread and the juice. This represents Jesus' body, represents what he did on the cross, why he had to come to earth for my sin. And I'm the person holding this. 
Like my life is too messed up. And when I'm holding it in those moments, I kind of feel the weight of my sin and I feel a little bit ashamed of who I am. Because I know the wages of my sin is death. That comes from a book of the Bible called Romans. Paul is the author of this book, and he makes it explicitly clear. My wages, my earnings, because of my sin, is death. And this is the beginning of our intellectual defense of communion. This is my chance to be a nerd. We're talking about apologetics. I'm a professor by trade. I'm bringing my nerdiness from the classroom into the church, so stick with me here. Here we go. Intellectual defense number one The wages of sin is death. And Paul, the same author in the same book, just a few pages earlier, tells his audience and he tells us, every single one of us have sinned. And the only person exempt to that is Jesus. And Paul also tells us that sin is our master and sin can own us. And a lot of us in the room, we don't need to be told that because we feel and we remember the weight of our sin and the choices that we've made and the consequences that come. We feel the weight of decisions other people have made and how that has affected our life. But this death sentence applies to everyone in the room. But we also know that God loves us and God wants a relationship with us. And this is the main narrative of the entire Bible. God is willing to do whatever it takes, even send his own son, because that's how much he loves us. And maybe if you know the Bible, maybe this makes sense to you. We don't have time to look at this portion of the Bible from a book called Genesis. Pastor Michael actually touched on this last week when Adam and Eve first sinned and shame entered the world. But in Genesis, look just before sin and shame enter the world. Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with God. And this is what God wants and this is what God intends for us. They have an open relationship with God. They walk freely with him. But we messed up and we sinned and our sin brought death and that changed the course of our relationship with God. Our sin brought separation between us and God. That's actually why Adam and Eve were kicked out of their first home, a place called the Garden of Eden, because they embraced sin and God is perfect and sin can't live in his presence. And so therefore, when we choose sin instead of God, we created that separation. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our iniquities, it's just a fancy word for sin, is what created that separation. Can we have a relationship with God? Still, yeah, of course we can. But that level of closeness seen in early Genesis faded away. But here's intellectual defense number two this morning. God loves you more than he hates your sin. Psalm 5.4 tells us that God doesn't delight in wickedness. Evil does not dwell in God. And this is just kind of a little example of a lot of places in the Bible that speak both to God's perfection and his distaste for sin. But more than that in the Bible, we see God's heart and God's heart for us. How much he cherishes us, how we are the joy of his heart. And nowhere is that more known, probably in our culture especially, than John 3.16. Maybe you know the verse that says that whoever believes in God will not perish, 
but have everlasting life. So we know that the wages of our sin is death, but we know that God loves us more than he hates our sin. Take a little mental breather here. We're going to transition just a little bit, and we're going to dig deep into the world of covenants. Read this with me. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. And on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, saying, This is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And if you look back at verse 25, you'll see that word, covenant. What in the world is it? It's been compared to a promise or a legal contract, and those are both in the right ballpark, but they're not exactly it. A covenant is similar to those, but at its core, a covenant is about a relationship. It brings people together. It unites people. If you've been to a marriage ceremony or if you have said those famous words from a marriage ceremony, tell death do us part. You're entering into a covenant relationship with another person. And someone much smarter than me noted that the only way a covenant can end is through death. If you're sitting here this morning and a marriage has dissolved in your life, it's not a physical death, but I would argue it's an emotional one. But this is seen throughout the Bible, this idea of covenant and death being intertwined. And it starts with a dude named Abraham in the book of Genesis. God makes a promise to him, a covenant relationship with Abraham. And he's like, hey, Abraham, your, your offspring are going to be like the dust of the ground and the stars of the sky. And Abraham's like, cool, but I'm like 100 years old. So how is this going to happen? And so God asks him to bring five different animals, and this is kind of intense, bring five different animals and cut them in half. And then at sunset, God spoke to Abraham, and the representation of God himself walked through the pieces of those animals to establish that covenant relationship with Abraham. And so this idea of God and his people entering covenants is biblical, but also this idea of a covenant relationship necessitating death is also biblical. Google something called the Passover from the book of Genesis. We don't have time to dig into it, but also in the Old Testament times, which very simply means before Jesus was alive, people who believed in God had to sacrifice kill, there's that element of death, an animal to atone for their sin, which basically just means to seek out God's forgiveness and to get right in their relationship with God again. And so this covenant relationship is built upon this idea of death. And all this builds up to intellectual defense number three. God has established a covenant relationship with you. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, you just spent like the last few minutes telling me that covenant relationships involve death. No thanks. See ya. I'm out of here. But wait. 
Here's the kicker. You don't have to die. Jesus did. And his death was and still is incredibly monumental. Let's read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five again. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And there's that word again, covenant. And I hope some light bulbs are going off and you're starting to figure out how this thing ends. Jesus took on death and in doing so, he established a new covenant forever for everyone. No more death is needed to have a relationship with God our Father. Intellectual defense number four, he who knew no sin took on sin on our behalf so we could become like the one who had no sin. Whoa. He who knew no sin took on sin on our behalf so we could become like the one who had no sin. Jesus took on our sin when he died on the cross, and he did this so that we could become like Jesus in the most important way, a true and forever relationship with God our Father. Jesus is a bridge that connects us to God through his death and resurrection, and God made Jesus to take on our sin, to bear our sins so that we can be redeemed. Redeemed, bought out of sin and slavery, paid for, no more debt. Our sin, our payment, our death has been redeemed. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace. Isaiah 43, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Galatians 3, 13, Christ has redeemed us. Colossians 1, 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And this is why Paul in the book of Romans says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Think of a house that's being condemned. Get out. You can't stay here. We're going to knock this thing over. There is no condemnation in our relationship with God because we are welcomed into God's presence. And Jesus said on the cross just before he died, he said the words, it is finished. Was he talking about the physical toll on his body? Of course he was. Was he talking about you? Yes, he was. This is why we have hope that Jesus finished the fight for us. His physical death finished our fight over sin. This is his fight for us. This is why Jesus is everything that God is. This is why communion, not the sermon, was the focal point of the early church. Because of the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that's better than any sermon you could hear. This is why the author of the book of Luke said that early Christ followers came together to break bread, to take communion, to take part and live in the grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers. And this is why we as followers of Jesus don't just remember his death on the cross. We participate in it. Communion is a time when our past and our present, our sin and our brokenness meet our future redemption in God. And this is why if you're a follower of Jesus, our physical death is no longer something to fear, but something to look forward to because we get to have that right and free relationship with God our Father again. 
This is why communion was so celebrated in the early church and why we do it every time we meet together on a Sunday. This is our story. You are God's story. And this is why the author of the book of Romans, Paul, says he's convinced that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Not death or life or angels or demons or fears or worries. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And why is Paul, this author, so convinced? Because every intellectual defense of the Bible points to you as God's most prized possession. So here's what we're going to do in just a minute. Don't reach for it yet. I know it's tempting for those of you who know what to do. It's right there. You want to grab it. Don't be the person who makes it crinkle off of the walls. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to take communion together. Now, practically speaking, if you're new with us and haven't been here before, in a couple of minutes, you're going to reach to the seat in front of you. You're going to peel back the first layer. There's a little cracker. And you peel back the second layer. And there's that nasty cup of juice for you. But remember, this isn't just something that we do. It's not a part of service. It's not a time filler or a transition. This is something we need. This is something we participate in. We remember Jesus and the relationship that we have with God. But before we do that, two days ago on Friday, I embraced my old life when it came to running. I put back on those old shoes just because I wanted to see what would happen if I went out for a run in my old pair of shoes. It was terrible. I had to come back early. My hips hurt a couple of miles in. My hips haven't hurt in over a year. I felt so great in the last year that I might have some of those in-sync moves left in me. I did that to my wife when I was practicing, and she was like, please don't do that. (laughs) But my hips hurt. I was kicking myself, not like in the translation, like, ah, why did I do this? But I was literally kicking myself. It was a terrible experience. And as frustrating as it was, I came home, and I told my wife, I said, I'm changed. I'm different. This is who I used to be, and I'm not going back to that anymore because I don't like who that person was, and I'm changed. Every good story has a hook, right? Something that you didn't see coming. It's like, wow, where did that come from? This is my attempt. I told you that you don't have to die, and that's true. Jesus died physically for all of us. He did it once, forever. It's done, and it's completed, and you don't have to die that physical death. But you get the choice to die spiritually. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, it's passed away, and the new has come. The old is dead. You're not embracing that sand foundation anymore. You're standing on the rock. And maybe you're starting to figure out that we're not just talking about running And shoes, we're talking about your life. That relationship that you got out of that was so terrible, that abusive person, the drugs, the alcohol, the job that you hated, the whatever it is, the fill in the blank, you don't live there anymore. And we're not putting up a tent and going back to that place because we are new and we've embraced the rock that is our solid foundation and we have embraced Jesus Christ and he is the center of our life. If that's not your story yet, that's okay. 
But maybe it's time to think about what would it look like if I embraced my spiritual death and my new life? Here's our fifth intellectual defense. And right now I'm specifically talking to the people in the room who are listening who don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. One of the most important days of your life is when you realize that your life is not about you at all. So collective, how are you doing with your spiritual death and new life? How are you doing in your covenant relationship with God? Communion is our chance to participate in God's love, to remember Jesus' death, to remember that we have that relationship with God, our Father, again, and to live, to dwell in that endless second chances that we all need and the forgiveness that comes in a relationship with Jesus. So whatever it is that you need to remember and reflect on, feel free to do that now as we reach and grab that communion cup. And whenever you are ready, we are going to take communion together.